Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm your host of Getting Common, Carlos Chapman. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law in Lexington, Virginia. This week, we're acknowledging the current season to discuss the modern role of the Black church, and I've assembled some experts for what will be an exciting conversation. We have Dr. Monique Moultrie, Pastor Cheryl Moore, and Reverend Stan Williams, and I'll start by having them introduce themselves further. Uh, first, Dr. Monique Moultrie. Hello, everyone, and thank you for the invitation. My name is Dr. Monique Moultrie. I'm basically a scholar of religion, race, gender, and sexuality, uh, which just means I primarily work on Black women's sexuality and Christianity. I have just finished a book on Black lesbian religious leaders, and my newest project is on Black child-free women in faith. Oh, that's me. I need it. And me. <laughs> yes. All right. Now, Pastor Cheryl. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much, Carlos. This is awesome. I'm Pastor Cheryl Moore. I'm the senior pastor of the Zion Temple United Church of Christ in Durham, North Carolina. I am a community activist, um, an advocate, and just an all-around the way girl. Glad to be here and glad to share with you. Thank you. And finally, last but not least, Stan. Hey, everybody. Reverend Stan Williams here. I am the assistant pastor at Zion Temple United Church of Christ in Durham, where Pastor Moore is the senior pastor. Um, I'm glad to be here and we're going to see what else comes out. <laughs> it will be a good conversation. I was going to say sanctified conversation, but I, I won't claim that because um, I know myself. <laughs> I might bring it down a little bit. <laughs> um, Y'all are good people. I don't know about me. All right. Now, Monique, I'd love to start with you by discussing what seems to be a trend to me, where people say they're spiritual but not religious. Um, and in your work, you mentioned that you focused on sexuality and Black women's sexuality in general. And I've wondered if you've seen an intersection between your work and the motivation behind your work and the reason why so many younger people say I'm spiritual, not religious. Yeah, thanks for the question. So the religious polling data says that Gen Z and millennials, so basically 18 to 40, are less likely to attend church, but overwhelmingly believe in God and have spiritual practice. So they may pray, they may chant, uh, but they just don't attend a service anywhere. And this data also says since these are the childbearing age range, their children are also not present. Uh, so they're not churched children. So in my interviews with Black women in sexuality, I get a mixture of folks who are Christian plus. So they are um, folks who are lifelong Baptist members, but they also are IFA practitioners or they're lifelong this AME, but they are also uh, Buddhists. They chant Buddhists. So I think when we talk about folks who are spiritual but not religious, I think there are different camps. There are those who have problems with institutionalized religion, and so they don't want to claim an identity. They just, you know, I do me and my spiritual practices. I'm one with God, and that's all that matters. You also have folks who claim that because they are outside of the denominational Christian norm or Muslim, whatever, world religious norm, and so they are practicing indigenous religions. 
Um, and so they really are spiritual. They, they don't participate in institutionalized. And then I think finally, there are those who are I'm just offended by the institution and think religion should be personal. And so spirituality is what personally they do. So I think around this time of year, we have lots of conversations with folks because this is the, you know, CME time, the Christian Christians who show up for Mother's Day, Easter and Christmas. Um, and and I, I think that moment neglects the fact that they have practices the rest of the year. Uh, just to say that, oh, you know, are they Christian because they only show up at these times? I, I think you actually have to listen to what people are telling you. Um, and I think, do you, what do you think the reasons are behind more people being CME? Because, um, you know, I feel like when I was in ki- a kid, um, you know, we were in church like three days a week. <laughs> um, you know, it was Sunday, all day, uh, choir rehearsal, prayer meeting, youth meeting, like, you know, church was like what we did socially. Um, and that seems to not be the case anymore. There really are people who are only there those three days a year, if at all. Um, and and has, has your research exposed some reasoning behind this? Yeah, I think a lot of people are getting their needs met in different places. And so when I talk to folks and they tell me, you know, well, I'm going to show up on Christmas, or I'm going to show up on Easter. I ask them like, well, what do you do to make meaning the rest of the year? Because I don't want to presume that they don't have a practice. And so lots of folks have real, you know, real significant ways of making meaning of life, of dealing with the hard times, of finding joy uh, that don't involve being in a building. And I think what COVID has transformed for a lot of standard church building folks is the idea that you can only be active in a building. I think folks are, you know, in church on their way to the park or they're in church in various, you know, at brunch. And, and, you know, they're having conversations about what the meaning of life is and they're having these deep conversations. And so I think we are watching a shift to even the standard traditional black church in its understanding of what being in church means and what being church means that allows for more of those expressions. Now, Cheryl, um, you know, at Zion Temple, y'all have done a lot in COVID. Like before we even went online, I talked about how I've tuned into Zion Temple um, you know, via Facebook sometimes even, right? Um, and so I wondered if you've noticed this trend as well, this this trend towards people being spiritual instead of religious, um, and how has it impacted your ministry and your congregation? Thanks for the question. And Dr. Moultrie, thank you so much for uh, your response to this question. And I really agree with Dr. Moultrie wholeheartedly. Um, even before the pandemic, we find specifically with this generation, and for those who espouse a more progressive ideology, that defining oneself as spiritual versus, versus religious really allows you to free yourself from being attached to organized religious groups whose theological perspectives really fail to align with the ideals, beliefs, and personal truths that individuals have. And to divorce themselves from groups who tend to espouse uh, unconditional civil rights. Um, These organized religious groups, even the church, tend to practice selective civil rights or civil rights with conditions. And we know that two of the primary issues are abortion rights um, and same-sex marriage uh, are two of the prominent issues in organized religious groups, especially the church, in particular, uh, the Black church. And so now we have 
um, a group of grassroots leaders who says that the black church is no longer at the forefront uh, of issues of inequities, uh, social justice issues, um, and that you can join us, but we don't need you because we are leading now uh, these efforts by way of being activists and advocates in our communities. And so what I believe that this generation is saying to us is that the Black church no longer has the bandwidth or the moral high ground to be in the forefront and to lead as it relates to certain things. So being spiritual now divorces me from the obligation of being connected to uh, and sometimes the tension of being connected to a group who does not espouse fully um, my ideals, my personal truths, and or my beliefs. And so with, with your own congregation, um, how have you combated that, that feeling that the younger generation has about the church to, to maintain community and to maintain uh, you know, the, the collective that the church gives? It's, it's interesting. That's, that's not a simple answer. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, we are a connectional church, yet autonomous because we are a part of the United Church of Christ. Now, we know that um, generally the UCC is um, welcoming and affirming. So now we're talking specifically about the Black church. Um, and being in the South, um, a lot of the Black UCC churches divorced themselves from the UCC denomination over the issue of same gender loving people. So they may even still carry the tag, the denomination UCC, but they've divorced themselves from uh, the organization uh, in terms of being um, specifically tied to it um, and being a part of the organization, right? Um, and so being autonomous, um, we have really been specifically intentional about teaching and preaching and reaching um, those who are in marginalized communities, um, particularly the LBGTQIA plus community, um, and also being sure that we affirm the gifts and graces that they bring to the table. Uh, I believe that we should all be able to bring the fullness of our humanity to the Lord's table and not just be welcomed, but wholly acceptable. And what uh, I think Black churches have tried to do in mitigating this culture is to say all are welcome, but just because people are welcomed, it doesn't mean that you wholly accept them. Um, and that's what's happening. Um, when you continue to espouse sin language, um, when you talk about same gender loving people, uh, then you're saying you're welcome, but you're not wholly accepted. Until we divorce ourselves and change our language and fully embrace and affirm the gifts and graces and allow those to be expressed, right? And um, um, experienced in our houses of worship, we have a lot of work to do. And I'm still actually uh, plowing that field and, and trying to do that work in our church and in our community. Well, and you know, I always think it's interesting. I grew up with no female pastors, wow. right? In, in, in my denomination. Um, and so I just, you know, I feel like you being a pastor and a lead pastor of a black church alone um, is a big advancement um, that I think we have to acknowledge and acknowledge that it's a change. It's a major change. Um, from even 20 years ago um, to have you as a senior pastor. So, you know, I applaud the folks at Zion Temple 
for being that progressive, which shouldn't be progressive, right? To, to have a woman in charge, but it, it often is in the black church. And I feel like it is some of the reason why people have shied away and tried to, to disconnect. Now, Stan, what do you think is behind this shift? Um, you know, what, what are your ideas about why people are abandoning religion? And I know you have some ideas, so I'm, I'm ready. You can see it on my face. <laughs> um, totally agree with what um, Dr. Moultrie, Dr. Monique, you know, has said, what Pastor Moore has said. Um, so many things going on in my head. I think that there are issues where um, people are, people have a lack of presence or a lack of power or a lack of voice. I think there, there's an issue with a sense of belonging because a lot of time people go to these places, they go to these churches, they, they go there because they find people that look like them, that might think like them. And so we're seeing, you know, as Pastor Moore mentioned, intergenerational changes where like, you know, Big Mama and them, you know, went to church, but then the generation after them dropped folks off at church. And then you've got the folks who were dropped off, not going to church, you know, and, you know, also mindful that the, that when we talk about the black church or when we talk about the church in general, we're not, <laughs> we have to live between the tension of talking about the building versus talking about people, you know, the institution, because a lot of our problems are because we're thinking about the building um, and people are caught between um, novelty and nostalgia. You know, whenever people think about the black church, they're thinking about old big mama and, you know, white on first Sunday and people shouting and the fried chicken after, you know, and the funeral home fans. And they're thinking about these nostalgic sorts of things. But we also have to deal with the novelty that, you know, the church is supposed to be a living and breathing thing that God breathes into. And if it's living and breathing like God, it should be moving. And people get caught up in the nostalgia and don't want to move in ways that are real or relevant to what's going on for people. And that, I think, is a huge part of why people are uh, <laughs> are turning away or becoming less involved in the act of church, you know, because what they've seen has not been real and what they're seeing has not been relevant, you know, because you can shout all day. But what does it have to do with paying my bills? What does it have to do with keeping my kids safe? What does it have to do with having affordable housing? <laughs> you know, where is the real? Where is the relevant? Um, you know, I think, and COVID has definitely exposed a lot of that. You know, <laughs> when things were forced to shut down and people were not allowed in the buildings, then the question is, who is the church then? What's the church going to do without a building? How, how do you be church without being in these four walls together? Um, and final thing, because I ramble, is that we have to remember that even I want to talk right about God, because that's a huge thing. God is more focused on relationship than religion. Before there was ever religion, there was relationship, because God was already in relationship with God's self. <laughs> Somebody's going to... God was not male. God is not male. God is not female. God said, let us make man in our image, right? So God is already in communion and community and relationship with God's self and creates the world to be in relationship with it. And so a part of another part of the reason that people are divorcing themselves from that experience is because there's a lot of focus on religion, but not on the relationship that you really will. <laughs> and if you, you won't really need the religion if you have the relationship. Like the relationship should be undergirding everything. Everything you do should be out of the relationship, not because of the ritual of religion. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you know, we, we kind of jumped the gun in starting this conversation. And so any of you can answer this. Um, and I think, you know, Pastor Cheryl kind of alluded to it. All, all of you have alluded to like the history and the nostalgia. Um, so I'd love to talk for a minute about what we ha- as Black people have gotten out of the church historically and, and why this Black church relationship is different than what, how other people engage with church. Um, and so anyone can answer, like, what have we gotten historically? out of it. And why does it, and it kind of highlights why this shift matters because of what that historical role was. Do you want to take it, Cheryl? You're nodding the most. Oh, oh sure. I'll, I'll start. I'll start. Um, I, I think that historically uh, the black church has been number one, um, not just about the four walls of the church historically, uh, but about being a cornerstone um, and a voice um, and an advocate in and for Uh, the community at large. Uh, Black pastors back in the day uh, did not just pastor a specific church congregation, uh, but that pastor pastored the community. Uh, So the community looked up to certain pastors uh, to stand in the gap uh, for uh, underserved persons and and marginalized people, uh, specifically in the civil rights era with with Dr. King and and other pastors. who uh, led that group. Now we could talk about the patriarchy and all the other um, innate systems that have been built in that and that are still perpetuated in our churches today. As you talked about me in the 132 year history of our church, I am the first pastor, first woman pastor uh, ever um, of our church. And and, that's a grave indictment I think against the black church at large. And we're still fighting uh, that battle that we should not have to fight, right? I think being a mouthpiece and, and a cornerstone uh, in our communities uh, is one of the things that that we looked up to the Black church uh, to be and Black pastors in particular, um, and specifically black, back then, as you talked about, uh, there weren't any or many um, women pastors, right? I didn't grow up with the model myself. Uh, my father's a pastor, but I did not grow up with the model of uh, seeing women lead in the church. They stood on the floor, they led prayer meetings, they did other things. And even if they called themselves a preacher, if they were allowed to preach, it might have been on Women's Day or Mother's Day, and they stood on the floor, uh, not having the opportunity to grace the pulpit uh, to, to render the message. So, um, you know, I think that one of the major things that's missing for me Um, when we talk about the modern Black church versus the historical Black church, is that we are no longer uh, that cornerstone, that mouthpiece, um, uh, the lead voice, the leading voice and and leading activists in our communities uh, for issues of disparities and and inequities and social injustices and on and on and on, um, the way that um, we used to be. Um, As um, difficult as it was then, I think it's much more difficult now uh, for us to be that voice and sort of to regain our positioning. Um, And I don't think that we can. I think that we now have to join uh, the movement that has taken place uh, from grassroots leadership within our communities. And I personally, I'm glad to see it. All right, Monique, would you like to weigh in at all on on the historical role? I just want to say ditto. I, I think also that it, it served a purpose for the Black community because it was a Black space, a Black-owned space. So it was a place of being affirmed, supposedly, uh, a place of feeling welcome, supposedly. 
Uh, and I think that that's part of the nostalgia that Reverend Stan was talking about, that, you know, we have this historical memory without the nuances. You know, King, for all of King's greatness and flaws, couldn't get a home in the Black church. He kept, you know, breaking out of those walls. He had to start the Progressive National Baptist Convention because his own Baptist Convention was like, nah, we're not feeling none of the stuff you're doing. So I, I think this this nostalgic sense that we have that the church has been this space where you could get, you know, from birth to the tombstone is true, but there are lots of ellipses of where people have fallen out and where their needs haven't been met in those spaces. But I think it has served as a hub. Right, and you know, and I kind of wonder if the reason why, you know, we are able to fall out of the church space even though, you know, probably people like us, us have always been disgruntled with the church. We just didn't have anywhere else to go. Um, is that now we do have other black spaces that we can create, right? Either through technology, um, making the world smaller and us being able to have community anywhere has made it such that, you know, I don't have to go sit in church and be forced to sit in the back or not sit here or not wear this or I can't bring my gay best friend or, you know, all these things that, you know, we used to put up with, with in the church, you know, we don't have to do that anymore to have community because we can create other black spaces. And so to that degree, the church has to evolve, right? The church has needed to evolve some. Stan, do you want to weigh in on history a little more before I I move forward? Uh, I totally agree with what Dr. Monique and, and boss have said, you know, the, Historically, the church has given a sense of um, collective and individual individual identity. And I think that that's really important um, <laughs> um, because that was the place, you know, it was, it was, as Pastor said, it was the cornerstone. That's where you learned, you know, that's where you went for education. That's where you went for social issues. That's where you went to socialize, you know, um, and we're seeing a lot of that um, work being done by places outside of those four walls. Yeah, it makes me think about even just the Black Lives Matter movement and the recent movements and, you know, how there would have been a time when a pastor might have started that, right? There there might have been a time when even if that pastor was disgruntled with his own church, you know, that's where the leadership came from. And, and that's not really where our leadership comes from anymore. Um, and the trippy part, you know, Carlos, is that even when we think about like the civil rights movement, we think that, you know, it's a misconception. And to believe that all black churches were part of that <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because they weren't. But, you know, we want to nostalgically think, oh, the black church. Yeah, they were involved in civil rights movement, but not everybody was. So <laughs> even then, you know, it's the same sort of tension that we're living with. Well, and it kind of gets into what, you know, uh, Cheryl was talking about earlier, you know, with abortion rights and gay rights. You know, even with civil rights, there were black churches that were adamantly opposed to things like integration and adamantly opposed to what was happening in the civil rights movement. And you're correct. It's our nostalgia for the church that makes us say, oh, every church was marching with Dr. King. <laughs> they were not. <laughs> they were not. Now, Cheryl, I'd love to talk to you about, you know, looking forward a little bit. Um, do you think there is a place in the modern black church for everyone Um And if there isn't yet, what kind of things can we do to make it more inclusive? Sure. Um, There should be a place in the modern Black church for everyone, but we all know that that's not necessarily the truth. I think that one of the grave indictments against um, the church historically, the Black church historically, and the modern Black church, and it still reigns true, 
um, is that she has been guilty um, of theologically marginalizing her own people by continuing to perpetuate and to espouse um, a white evangelical brand of theological perspectives um, as it relates to what is sin. And it really is just a, a code for excluding those who choose to live uh, in their truth. And that that truth is usually outside of the margins of what is an acceptable westernized societal norm, right? So we've espoused that as a Black church. We perpetuate that. Um, we preach that. Um, you know, our cultures and our environments and our atmospheres um, tend to uh, display that. And I think that's, you know, just uh, a sad indictment against our churches and our people. Um, you know, the Black church continues to condemn and to shun um, those in our communities who bring their gifts and graces to the church. Um, and if I can be honest with you, uh, many of these marginalized groups um, are in an abusive relationship with the Black church. Uh, they take the abuse because of their love for the church and their longing to be welcomed and embraced in a spiritual religious space, right? Um, I personally take the abuse because of my love for the church. So again, to sort of mitigate the culture, a lot of modern Black churches now um, will practice toleration by saying, again, uh, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin, right? And that too is an abusive theological perspective. And we have to abolish that sin language when it comes to love, when it comes to uh, same gender loving um, relationships uh, in order to be fully welcoming and wholly accepting of all people. Again, you can be welcomed and still not fully accepted. And that's what many people are um, accepting as what's going to be the norm for their existence in a Black church setting, and that ought not be so. And so I think there are some things that we have to do intentionally. Um, and the first thing is that we have to engage in theological truth-telling. Um, if we tell the truth, uh, we are more Paulinian than we are Christian, mm. that the Black church um, espouses the teaching of Paul more than the words and the actions of Jesus, number one. Number two, uh, we have to engage in the practice of decolonization um, of our views of the Bible. I think number three, we have to fully adopt uh, the greatest commandment of love. And that alone will abolish some of the abusive and um, exclusive theologies that many of our Black churches still um, use as their foundation. Um, I think another thing that we have to do is that we have to actively um, and visibly be advocates and voices in our communities for marginalized groups. Um, and then finally, we have to invite folks to the table and we have to openly affirm and confirm the same callings and graces and allow them to use them uh, in our congregations um, and not shy away from that. So I think that those are some of the things that we can begin to do, but you have to have the boldness and the courage uh, to do this work. 
uh, trust. You really have to have the boldness and the courage uh, to, to be about initiating this kind of work because uh, it ain't for the faint of heart in the black church. <laughs> I feel like I, you know, Cheryl for president, Cheryl for, for head pastor, because we need to implement this full agenda because you said a whole word when you said Paulinian. Um, I, I felt that in my spirit. I was like, whoo. <laughs> like, yeah. what, did, what did we used to study on Sundays, right? Oh. Like, were we reading the red letters? Absolutely. Right? Were we, right? <laughs> All right. Now, Monique, I'd love to get back to your work on sexuality and um, some of what's the heart of your work, the concepts of patriarchy and respectability. Um, and I assume that I think your answers will build on some of what uh, Pastor Cheryl has said. Um, you know, do you have suggestions for how the church can move past that history and be more inclusive. Yeah, I've been thinking and writing about how to get the Black church right for a very long time because I am a professing Christian and I want to participate in an organization that's not as janky as the Black church sometimes is. So, I, I yeah, I have a litany of lists, but my, my top five would be, I think there really has to be shifts in leadership. And that's why this last book was on Black lesbian religious leaders because I really do think we need more visions of what leadership looks like and more ways to pursue inclusive justice and not just just us gets what we want. Um, but I, 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 a lot of my work is with Black women, which make up the majority of Black congregations. So the reality is we don't get different leadership until we decolonize Black women's minds mm. because they are the stumbling blocks to acceptance of new leadership. When we say we want to bring in more LGBTQ folks, we want to love the kids in our community that are LGBTQ. If the women who are not who are in those spaces don't take that mantle up, it's not going to get done. So for as much as we talk about the patriarchy, I also talk about the in, internal patriarchy that black women in black church spaces tend to work from where they assume male leadership is better for them. I also think that tapping into the gifts of our youth is something that we miss out on, that a lot of the reasons why they get dropped off and then they don't come is that they never see themselves reflected. You know, you might have a youth church or you might have a youth Sunday, but if they're not integrally, you know, involved, if they don't understand why the church does what it does, they have no involvement in it and they're not going to stay because it's not for them. It's something for Big Mama and my aunties, but it isn't for them. I think... Um, for congregations as Blacks have done better and been able to move out of like urban Black spaces where we live together and thus we worship together, when our churches started be becoming geographically further away, we have like religious deserts now where you have a church that is 34 you know, miles away from your home and you're commuting with people who are coming from 34 other miles and we've got competing interests. I might be inner city and my you know, interests are affordable housing. You might be talking about the stock market crashing. And I think churches, in order to find a middle ground, have taken these really safe prosperity gospel, like God wants us all to be abundant, like middle ground messages that are supposed to catch everyone, but it doesn't deal with the, the real, like, I really am talking about my, I'm ready to retire. Like, I care that the stock market is tanking, or I really can't afford housing. I want to, you know, hear a sermon that's going to talk about what we're going to do. And so I, I think that those spaces where we mismatch each other in an effort to all be one community um, is also a problem in how the church can become more inclusive. And I think, lastly, the last thing I'll say is that, that I think if we are social justice oriented, which is what we're seeing 
more people needing, then we have to do that with the mindset that we're all a body of believers that are trying to like please God and trying to live right. And if that's the case, then we have to think about how we all can do that. Not just, you know, what's my personal salvation like, but what's it going to take for all of us to thrive? I can't survive if you're not thriving as well. So I think that's the the last thing I would pitch in my laundry list of like, let's fix it quick. I just love that y'all both had lists. Y'all were like, oh, I got this. <laughs> y'all were like, no, no, I, I, I have solutions. Here's what's wrong. Uh, and I appreciate that. And, and I think, you know, to me, the intersection between what Pastor Cheryl said and Dr. Monique said um, is this prosperity gospel, white evangelical approach and this focus on sin, which I personally view to be extremely capitalist, right? It's, it's a capitalist way of thinking about religion, right? Like it is your fault that you are poor because you are a sinner. It is your fault that you are not prosperous because you're a sinner. It's your fault that you are not cisgendered and straight because you are a sinner. And it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's disconnected from the community. Um, and I often wonder how long can we embrace capitalism and actually embrace religion and it, true religion of what we're all talking about? Um, because you can't just assume that everyone's going to be a millionaire someday. And if they're not a millionaire, they're a sinner. That, that, that doesn't work. It just doesn't. Now, Stan, um, I'd love to transition to you and talk about what you have spoken about frequently, which is the need for religious imagination. Um, and I would love for you to tell us about that idea, um, why you think it's needed, and how that can help to make the church a more inclusive and welcoming place. Okay. Ah, catch my breath. So before we get into that, can we just take a moment to recognize that this, this discussion about the Black church um, is being done majority by Black women? Like, that's huge. Like, for the Black church itself, where the face might be Black male, the hands and the feet and the heart of it, as Dr. Monique said, had been women. And so, like, <laughs> just coming off top, first thing about this imagination, I would not call it religious imagination. I'd like to think of it more as a reclaimed or redeemed imagination because scripture talks about, um, you know, people not knowing God or thinking that they knew God, but they have these vain imaginations and all their heart they did was evil. And, you know, it talks about the weapons of our warfare, um, not being carnal, but mighty through God to pull down strongholds, right? And casting down every vain imagination that exalts itself, you know, against the knowledge of God, these strong opinions, you know, that exalt themselves. And so, like, misogynoir is a vain imagination. You know, <laughs> whiteness is a vain imagination. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, if you perceive Black women in the church um, only as maybe ministers and that they can cook you some fried chicken or sing you a song to make you shout, if they're minstrels, if they are mules, if they're only martyrs, if they can be mamas and mammies, but they can't be actual messengers of the word of God when Mary, a woman, was a literal bearer and bore Jesus. <laughs> when Mary Magdalene was the first person at the tomb and the first person to carry the good news away from it because the fellas went home scared. Like, that's a vain imagination. We've got to, we've got to conquer that. We've got to dismiss that. We have to confront that. Um, so that's the kind of thing that's at the heart of my work. Like re, if there are vain imaginations, there has to be a 
pure, a redeemed, a reclaimed imagination, that's a gift from God. Just like free will is a gift from God. You know, imposter syndrome is a vain imagination because it says, you know, it's exalting itself against how God sees you. If God created you and God looks at you and sees something not only good, but great and lovable and worth redeeming, like how dare we listen to these voices that would diminish and refute what God says about us, you know? And that's a personal struggle for myself. So I'm talking to myself about that, you know. Um, tolerance is a vain imagination. <laughs> like in these terms, like people, you know, we've talked about tolerance and acceptance, but that bar is too low because there's nowhere in scripture that it talks about tolerating people. We are required to love people, not even embrace. <laughs> so it's like tolerance acceptance, embracing, loving, and the bar is love, but we've, but we're so twisted. We've listened so much to these vain imaginations that we will settle for acceptance. We'll settle for these half identities where parts of us are accepted. Oh, you know, you know, we'll let them play in the church as long as they don't bring that lover (laughs) that we don't want to recognize. Oh, you know, like, we don't mind that he's got a sweetheart and a wife, you know, because he sounds, he, you know, he preaches real good. So these are vain imaginations that we have to deal with, that we have to confront. Um, and that's a huge part of what I'm thinking about in this, this work that I have not fully written out yet. But like, there has to be so much more. There's, because if the church, the church, first of all, also has to acknowledge that there's a lot of hurt that's happened through the people of the church onto others. Like we don't want to acknowledge that, you know, we don't want to admit that. So then we can't repent and we can't change it and amend it and make it right. And so the church has to heal from the hurt and it has to help others heal because the calling is not just to be healed, but to be whole. And if we're really going to move forward and we're really going to make an impact, we have to embrace the wholeness, the whole identity of people not just the part, the parts that we like. You know, this, this makes me think of what uh, Monique said when she talked about, you know, it's one thing to bring in female leadership, but we can't move forward until we decolonize our minds. Right. And your vain imaginations is, is how we have colonized our minds to accept male only leadership, to accept men taking credit for women's work to accept, you know, it's totally cool if the choir director is gay as long as he doesn't act too gay, um, right? All of these things that we have accepted um, is us colonizing ourselves and not, not being properly on the right path. Um, I'd love to give y'all an opportunity to respond to each other, right? Because um, I feel like, you know, y'all been nodding like I have and I'm the only one talking. <laughs> so, um, you know, Cheryl or Monique, if y'all would like to, to respond to what Stan said or what anyone else said, you can go ahead, Cheryl. Um, I think Dr. Monique and um, Pastor Stan, thank you so much for that. I think that one of the greatest gifts that we have been given is the gift of imagination and reimagination, reimagining um, ourselves, reimagining the spaces uh, that we cur- curate and that we are engaged with, um, particularly the church. So thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Monique said something that struck me and she talked about um, how we have espoused um, salvation as being personal. Uh, when salvation is not personal, it's not individual, it's communal. Um, for God so loved the world. Uh, Jesus said, I came 
into this world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Salvation was never meant to be about personal piety, right? Um, never. And again, that's that whitewashed, white evangelical lens uh, through which we view the Bible and then live out the principles of salvation uh, in our communities. Um, and so then it creates a hierarchy uh, of Christian life and living or a hierarchy of salvation, wherein I believe that I'm better than you because I don't do that, right? Uh, we all do something, <laughs> right? And so, and that was never supposed to be the case, but specifically in the Black church, uh, we have espoused that, we perpetuate that type of hierarchical salvation uh, that is impossible uh, to live up to. And you're always trying to live up to that standard, which is a vain imagination. It doesn't exist. Uh, I believe that, you know, it's erroneous to think that uh, slave masters uh, taught um, us Christianity. They did not. Uh, we, we brought it with us. We had our brand. We had our beliefs. Um, we knew about God. We knew about scriptures. Right. Um, but they uh, perpetuated and created a different lens through which we should see it, view it uh, and live it so that now it's about personal piety. And when I mess up, uh, I'm going to hell or I get punished. Um, and that's been certainly um, literally beaten into us so much um, during that period of time uh, that is still ingrained in our DNA um, as the Black community. Uh, and we still live our lives and even live out um, our relationship with God and, and specifically Christianity based on that kind of personal salvation when it's supposed to be communal. And when we see it and we live it as community, as communal, then we begin to see that the community is diverse and then we begin to embrace that diversity by loving um, the diversity and, and, and what everyone brings to the table um, and wholly accepting that uh, because we believe in the fullness of the ethic of love because we are community and the community is one, right? The community is one, but the community is also diverse and that diversity is beautiful and necessary. I love y'all. <laughs> yes, that's a whole word, Monique. I think for me, I want the two of them to put together a Christian curriculum like tomorrow because yes. I teach vacation Bible school. I teach Sunday school. And, you know, the vain imaginations is exactly what we're learning. I mean, if you look at any standard Baptist Sunday school education model, that's all they're giving us. And, and you're absolutely right. It's, you know, all the words of Paul and like how we live our lives under under that rubric and I'm just frustrated because this is what I got when I was eight and you know as I approach 50 I'm like I just gotta know that there's more to the text than this so I I just I affirm y'all both get sabbatical so y'all can go write this we need this tomorrow don't just share it with the UCCs like all of us need it yeah I agree. I, yeah go ahead Stan uh, yeah yeah, totally wholeheartedly agree with that. Because um, one of the things that I, I think Carlos, you know, she definitely wanted me to talk about this after I posted it on Facebook. But um, just like thinking about um, what Pastor Moore said about um, not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with others, because, you know, cross is both. Um, I, we have to imagine more that there's a place beyond 
Like we've, we've always been talking about getting from here to there, but it doesn't just stop there. God is always calling us to this place called beyond. You know, we're going beyond healing to a place called wholeness. Because whenever Jesus healed somebody, it wasn't just make their body physically better, but Jesus also reconnected them back in the community. Look at the person that was sitting in the tombs, right? Cutting themselves, right? They're divorced from community, place they live in a space that's unclean where they're, where they're cut off from their community. Woman with the issue of blood, she's cut off from community community. She gave all that she has. You know, uh, she can't be around people because of what the rules and the ritual have said and what they say about her. But Jesus touches her and heals her and makes her whole so that she is reintegrated back into community. That's a huge indictment on us. You know, think about the widow at Nain. She's already a widow. She loses her son. She's walking him out to the grave, you know, because her life is ending there. Like, that's it for her. She has no connection to community. But Jesus stops the funeral, gives her back her son and her place in community. And we have to imagine that even in the way we relate to each other, we've got to imagine beyond. Um, because, as I wrote, um, you know, we have to imagine pure imagination, as I like to call it, because I love Willy Wonka. Pure imagination is imagining that God's place and position for our enemies in our lives is more than just being our footstool. <laughs> like, it, like we, because we hear all the time about our haters and our enemies, and people love to preach about that. God bless them. But your enemy is not always meant to be your enemy. Like, it just might be that God has placed them in your life so that through you, they can learn about themselves and about God and God's love and God's grace. Because that's what happens with the children of Israel in Egypt. You know, he tells Moses, you know, I'm going to get glory out of this. Well, I should say God tells Moses, not he, because God is not male. God tells Moses that there's going to be glory out of this. And I'm doing this. So not only does Israel know who I am, but these people in this country know who I am. So we've got to imagine that there's a place in community, even for our enemies. What does that look like? They might not forever be our enemies. Some of us need enemies. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> some folks need it. Salah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, who are you without like, that's your foil, right? For so many people, um, it's like, I, I, view, I feel the same way about prosperity gospel, right? Like someone has to be at the bottom for you to be prosperous. Someone has to be your enemy so that you're the good person. Right. And, you know, what does the world look like for people who need someone to be lesser to feel whole? I don't know. All right. So Stan, I want to start our last segment with you and kind of speculate on what the future holds after you and Cheryl go write this curriculum that Monique and I need you to write today. Like take your time, take some time off, go write this curriculum so Monique can have it for vacation Bible school this summer. And so I can just have it for my life. Outside of y'all writing this curriculum, what does the future hold? Like what, what can people, what can we do like in the short time, short term to start to find our way back to the Black church and start to rebuild this community? Ooh, that's a lot. First off, I don't know, and I don't think that it's for people to find their way back to the Black church. I think that the Black church is going to have to find its way to people. You know, as, as you know, his pastor Moore and Dr. Monique have mentioned, you know, there are grassroots orgs that are doing the work. And so the Black church is going to have to try and catch up and connect and do that work. And they're going to have to live with these orgs not necessarily wanting their involvement or knowing that they don't need their involvement to get this work done. Um, you know, uh, 
again, it comes down to being real and relevant. Um, you know, the relevance as we talked about is like, how do we help our communities deal with food insecurity? How do we deal with problems in schools? How do we deal with an aging elderly community? Like our cohort is getting older and they're living longer than ever. And we're seeing even in health um, issues that we've not seen before. And definitely the stuff that we've not talked about. Like when was the last time that, you know, a church or an org has really talked about what it means and what it looks like to gracefully age? what it means to, you know, to expect that, to help us through these life changes. <laughs> we're doing it, we're experiencing it. People are living and they're getting older, but who's talking about what that means, you know? And so I, the relevance is gonna be the black church having to find ways to be relevant and consistent about it. And then they're also gonna have to work on being real, you know, authentic, owning up to the good and the bad and the ugly working to do something different about that, being a consistent presence in the community, showing up, speaking up, speaking out, especially for those that are marginalized or disenfranchised. And sometimes that even means getting up from the tables where other folks that you would speak for aren't allowed. You're not allowed to go to every table. Don't eat at every table. Sometimes it means getting up from that table. Well, and, you know, one thing we have we hadn't touched on, um, you know, is the impact of mass incarceration on the church population and, you know, on people being raised by the grandparents and that being a reason for this generational gap where, you know, there are people who are, you know, people my parents' age and our parents' age, there aren't many of them in the church when you look at things like the the drug drug epidemic and mass incarceration. There's There is a generational gap of people who died younger, um, but then our grandparents lived longer. And so there's this, you know, this kind of wedge. Um, and I think that has had a major impact on the church as well. There's, there's a big generational gap where lots of people, the age of my friend's kids, um, maybe more people our age, but maybe not as many people our parents' age in that 60s, 70s range as there might've been when we were growing up, but lots of people in their 80s and 90s, or I shouldn't say lots, but more than one would expect. Um, the population. And so I think that has, has definitely had an impact on the church. Now, Cheryl, what do you think about the future? What's your speculation? Ooh, <laughs> uh, Stan said a mouthful. And I think some of the things that we talked about in terms of what we can do uh, to be more inclusive, um, and he's right, um, that uh, the church is busy trying to bring the community into the church, but we've got to get the church back out into the community. I think the first thing that we have to do um, is repent. I think the second thing that we have to do is reimagine. And then I think the third thing we have to do after we reimagine is to reach out. Again, um, the church, uh, through its theological views and perspectives, um, is totally guilty of being capitalist uh, with the prosperity gospel and, and other pieces. We've made it a hierarchical institution in terms of the way that we relate to one another and our relationship to and with God um, and what that means. Um, and I think we have to change that. Um, it's all about, you know, my happiness, my peace, my joy, my this, my that. And, and when disciples ask Jesus, listen, teach us how to pray. He said, well, you start off by saying our father, it's community. 
It's all about us, not about you and not about me, but we've made it so individualized. I got mine, you got yours to get, and you ain't got yours because you ain't got enough faith. And if you do this and you do that, I mean, we've made God out to be a cosmic genie um, and he's not our cosmic genie, right? And so until we learn that we really are community, a diverse community, but we are one um, and we have to take church back out into the community um, and be a part of community. Uh, I don't think anything's going to change. I do believe that the pandemic again has exposed a lot, but I don't know if we've learned a lot. (laughs) You know, I see us falling right back into the same old patterns and ways of being um, as the church. Um, And we had a grand opportunity over these past two years to really rethink some things, to reimagine, to repent, um, and really do some work in order to come out of this um, a changed um, institution um, and back out into the community. So, um, you know, I'm optimistic guardedly, but there's a lot of work that has to be done. Um, And as Jesus said, you know, uh, uh, the vineyard is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Uh, where are those courageous, bold laborers who's willing uh, to get out there and to, to really do this work? Um, and I'm looking to lock arms with those people. All right. Now, Monique, I'll let you close us out with your response about the future. What do you think the future holds? I think Reverend Stan is right. The church has to evolve and, and move to where people are. But I think it can't do that without acknowledging that there will be conflict, that I think black churches need to stop avoiding conflict. That's why we don't talk about sexuality, why we don't talk about patriarchy, because there will be conflict. The early church had conflict. Paul and Barnabas, you know, split all the way up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if the early church had a conflict and survived thousands of years, I think, our you know, small congregations can do the same. So I think leaning into that conflict to get to the other side is where I hope the future of the black church will be. Now, before we leave, I want you all to promote yourselves. You've all been very humble. Uh, Monique has two books with Duke University Press. Uh, so, Monique, tell us where we can find your books and what your books are. Um, Passionate and Pious, Religious Media and Black Women's Sexuality, Duke Press, Amazon. And the next one that's coming out is Hidden Histories, Black Lesbian Faith Leadership. And uh, that one will be out either November or December of this year. And both Duke University Press, both available on Amazon. You need to go buy it if you have enjoyed listening to Dr. Monique today. And then uh, Cheryl and Stan, how do we find and support Zion Temple from afar? Uh, Well, we're in Durham, North Carolina, located there. We will be reopening soon. Um, But you can find us on all social media outlets um, at Zion Temple uh, UCC uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. Um, I'm working on my first book entitled The Repurposed Life. Um, so that'll be coming out soon. And um, yeah, we're, we're, we're out here. <laughs> Just we're Zion Temple, ZT, look for it, support it. it. And then Stan owes us a book about his, like, you need to get that done, bro. Like, we're all waiting. I'm working on it, I promise. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> we're all ready. <laughs> Well, I just want to thank these guests. Um, I, I feel enlightened and inspired and, you know, ready to move forward. So I appreciate y'all enriching my Holy Week. And I think, you know, everyone listening will feel the same. So greatly, greatly appreciate it. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in to Getting Common today. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are played, Apple, Spotify, also on the Voice America website. 
And we also have a YouTube channel where we upload these videos. Uh, Feel free to send me emails through the show page. And you can reach out to me on social media as well. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion. 